Hello, everyone. This is Jim Hughes with AFIO Now. We are a program of uh, recorded interviews with former senior U.S. intelligence officers. And today, I've got a really, really great speaker. He's a good friend and former colleague, a member of CIA's vaunted Near East and South Asia Division. He is a former chief of station, a former uh, deputy division chief, a former uh, division chief. And before his retirement, he was the um, national intelligence manager for Iran. Uh, he's also uh, a teaching fellow uh, at both Harvard and GMU, and he has a company called Ferros Strategic Consulting. Please welcome Mr. Norman Rule. Norm, welcome to AFIO Now. Good morning, Jim. It is it is just great to see you and to speak with you again. Norm. Um, Many people today come to you on a regular basis to uh, ask for your uh, insights and advice on Iran. It's a subject that you spend an awful lot of time on uh, during your career, certainly in the latter portions of your career. And I know that our AFIO audience will really enjoy hearing um, some of your thoughts on the subject. Um, where's Iran going? I mean, the 1979 revolutionaries are either, you know, long past their prime or dead. You know, What's happening today? That's a great opening question. So first thing to keep in mind is it's a young country. And because of that, 65% of Iran was born after the 1979 revolution. More so, more importantly, in many ways, many people um, uh, who participated in the Iran-Iraq war um, are rising to leadership positions. But most Iranians were very young during that war as well. So that even that war itself doesn't have the impact it used to. Many Iranians have instead grown up in, a, in a, an Iran of post-2003, never-ending sanctions, never-ending diplomatic and social isolation, never-ending confrontations with the West, a, a poor and weak economy. Uh, but that said, there's a part of Iran that isn't changing as well. Uh, the hardline leadership, it's still there. It's just a little different. Uh, Iran's supreme leader will be uh, 81, 82 this year. Um, he has put in place, he has cemented in place a selection architecture to ensure that his successor uh, is cut from the same revolutionary mold. Um, the Revolutionary Guard Corps, their elite military, um, uh, controls most of the uh, um, uh, positions in government and in the commercial world. So you're having a country that is becoming um, uh, led by a new generation of post-revolutionary uh, individuals who uh, might be a little more willing to engage the world, but no less assertive. And their um, uh, their 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 views on Iran's role in the region may not be very much different from. Um, uh, what they face, what we face today. One final comment: We have a. We often talk about Iran's opposition, who, what Iran's protests, which pop up. Iran is a protest-rich country. Every year in Iran, there are between six hundred and nine hundred protests. Uh, this is lost because it's not covered by the Western press or indeed much of the Iranian press. These are generally local. These are generally economically driven, labor problem driven, the put down. But Iran's. Um, Opposition right now remains leaderless, rudderless, uh, lacks cohesion to labor uh, uh, forces around the country, and it does not yet represent a uh, threat to the government, as we have seen since 2018, where they've had very little difficulty 
in putting down the unrest. Norm, how are decisions uh, made in Iran today? Is there something about this uh, process that most people miss? Yes. And uh, uh, it's, it, this, is, this is an important point because it, it cuts to the heart of the issue of how we engage with Iran. Within Iran, there is a supreme leader, the Ayatollah Khamenei. He has been in that chair since 1989. Um, and he has developed a very strong power base, which is um, uh, supported by the Revolutionary Guard Corps. Uh, Iran's uh, uh, large and very powerful military, I mentioned previously. Uh, they make this this small group of individuals makes all the decisions on those topics of of concern to the United States: nuclear weapons, the new direction of the nuclear industry, uh, engagement with the West, uh, 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 terrorism, involvement in the region. These issues are all made by that group. Now, who isn't part of that group? Well, Iran's foreign minister is not part of that group. Uh, Javed Zarif, who is the most mendacious official since Baghdad, Baghdad Bob, and I use no hyperbole when I say that, is meant to be a fax machine. His job is he comes into a room and is told, you operate in this framework. Uh, do your best within that framework to produce the best possible deal for Iran. But he has no influence on actual decision making. He is, in essence, in many ways, uh, a, a silky, mendacious fax machine. Um, so Iran's president comes next. Iran's president has similarly relatively little influence uh, over the issues that uh, count. The Iranian president is selected um, um, uh, from a group of candidates which are approved by Iran's hardline leadership. You can't run for president unless the hardliners trust you. And the president's job generally is to be, at least um, since 2003, with maybe with one exception, a softer face to more populist face to the West. Uh, but the, Iran's president has no influence over its nuclear weapons decision making, its uh, ultimate um, uh, decisions on uh, nuclear negotiations, its regional activities, et cetera, et cetera. He's sort of the chief operating officer of the country. So what does this mean? This means that when we negotiate with Iran, we're negotiating with people who have been around for a long time. Supreme Leader sat in that chair since 1989. He has seen every play we have in our book. Every few years, we switch from confrontation to engagement as our own politics switch. And we just waits us out. This is what we, the Americans will do. This is what the West will do. So we have a very uh, practiced leadership we also have a leadership which is very firm in their revolutionary beliefs, very concerned that the country itself may be, may be changing. Uh, uh, the supreme leader will set his succession to replace himself probably by their current um, uh, chief justice, a man named Ebrahim Raisi. And it's an important point to look at that because that means for the uh, Raisi, who is about 60 years old, maybe 61 this year, He's got 20 or 30 years in front of him, another hard line, Iran. So again, Iran may change to become a little less revolutionary in its trappings, but no less uh, assertive and hard line in the decisions that matter most to the United States. Let me ask you about um, sanctions. Are they successful? What have they done to the Iranian economy? And how do they impact Iranian decision making? So I have sat with five U.S. presidents to discuss Iran and three in some detail. And uh, it's 
It's not, a, it's not unreasonable to say if you're a U.S. president and you're dealing with Iran, you have three tools. You have diplomatic engagement, you have economic pressure, and you have military options. And I often ask people, anyone believe that we can halt Iran support for Lebanese Hezbollah or threats against Americans with a diplomatic demarche? And they laugh and they say, of course not. And then I say, well, anyone in the room believe we should start another land war in Southwest Asia with a few hundred thousand U.S. troops and the secondary consensus that come from that? And they say, no, 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 we don't want to do that either. And I say, so I guess everyone in the room lands on economic sanctions is how we're going to pressure Iran. And sanctions are, have been a constant um, a part of U.S. policy since 1979. And in fact, just to, just to take a, a digression for a moment, U.S. policy regarding Iran has been remarkably constant since 1979. There have been four aspects to U.S. policy which are omnipresent. Uh, we don't want a war in Southwest Asia. We don't want a conventional war with Iran, which we would win relatively quickly, uh, but there would be secondary consequences that we all we all we all can imagine. The second is we will employ long-term economic sanctions on Iran to convince their decision makers this prize that you're seeking is not worth the price of potential political instability. The third tool is we work with invariably unenthusiastic and not always very helpful European and international allies. Moscow, Russia, uh, and the European Union have not been in favor of uh, certainly non-economic coercive measures since Iran since 1979. And finally, um, uh, we will um, do what we can to engage Iran diplomatically, uh, recognizing that this has limited success. So when you when you employ sanctions, you have a couple of different issues that, that you've got to face. First, sanctions work best when they're multilateral. The times when Iran has made changes in its decision making has invariably been when you have got um, the international community lined up against Iran, such as after the discovery of the uh, 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 secret, that secret facility at Qom, uh, where they were building a centrifuge um, cascade array, which uh, looks nothing like what you would build for power and an awful lot like what you would build for a nuclear weapons program. Uh, but these sanctions usually aren't enthusiastically supported by, the, by, by our allies. Usually they will say something, our allies will say something like, you're asking us to do these five major sanctions. Can we do two? And then go to the Iranians and see, maybe they'll change their opinion. Well, the impact of this is it, it, it allows Iran to adjust and get used to sanctions. Sanctions have their greatest impact in the announcement. And usually it's something along the lines of we've cut off your access to international financial institutions, and that causes a big problem for Iran. But over time, they show how they adjust to this. Now, no matter what you hear about sanctions, there are only three sanctions that really matter for Iranian decision making. And this is something your listeners should keep in mind. Uh, any sanction that stops Iran from selling oil, any sanction that stops Iran from repatriating back to Tehran, the revenue from all of its exports that it sent abroad, iron ore, pistachios. And finally, its ability to use international financial systems. Those three things, those three things move decision makers, the small group led by the supreme leader that make the decisions we care most about. Other sanctions have a couple of different um, impacts. First, they tell the world we're sanctioning Iran. You should be careful about dealing with Iran. But they don't touch Iran's decision makers. 
Uh, last week, the Biden administration sanctioned two Iranian officials for human rights violations. I doubt the Supreme Leader even heard about it. And certainly he wouldn't care about it. Uh, that tells the world who we are and reminds the world Iran is engaged in nefarious activity, but it doesn't necessarily touch their decision making. The problem is we have an array of sanctions, but these three sanctions are at the heart of the Iranian nuclear deal. If you sign into an Iranian nuclear deal, you in essence say, we will allow Iran to export oil. We will allow Iran to repatriate revenues from all of its exports. We will not. We will allow Iran to use financial institutions, with some minor exceptions. And in exchange, Iran will accept these restrictions on its nuclear program. So let's say an Iranian missile from Yemen, God forbid, strikes the U.S. embassy in Riyadh. And we say, aha, Iran's behind this. We would like to punish Iran by halting its, its oil exports. Their answer is fine. I guess we don't have to obey the nuclear restrictions any longer. So that's sort of the background on sanctions. What have sanctions done to Iran? Well, they've, they've, they've crippled the economy. Iran, um, Iran's economy is not a, a thriving economy in large part because of their poor economic decision making. Uh, the revolutionary government that has led Iran for many years is very big on shooting people. Um, uh, Ibrahim Raisi, the most likely candidate to be uh, the next Supreme Leader, uh, signed off on the deaths of thousands, maybe five, 6,000 people during the 1980s. But they're not very good on economic policy. There's a lot of corruption, statist um, activity in Iran that sort of dooms the country to a weak economy. But our sanctions starve them of external investment, and uh, that has an impact on their world. Let me pull two threads here, and I, and I will close. The first is the Supreme Leader doesn't necessarily see sanctions as entirely a bad thing. Because when you have economic connections, you also have cultural connections. So when the JCPOA uh, was signed a Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the nuclear deal, 20, 2015, uh, you had a couple of people in Iran say, I would like to bring in Pizza Hut. I would like to bring in Kentucky Fried Chicken. Literally, they lasted for one or two days. They were closed. And then because the Iranians are very imaginative people, they reopened. I think Pizza Hut is now Pizza Hat. Uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken, I think, is, I think it's the Colonel something or other chicken. It's got some strange name, but it's very, it's no longer American. The Supreme Leader believes self-sufficiency, a resistance economy, an economy that moves away from oil, which exposes Iran to international pressures, is okay. He lives rather austerely. He doesn't care if most of the country lives austerely. And I can talk about the economy uh, separately if you ask about that. Uh, but the sanctions do have one benefit that every American should applaud. They help constrain the resources available to Iran's proxies overseas. That has a real, it sounds complicated, it has a real simple impact. Lebanese Hezbollah is now working with a few hundred million dollars less than it had during the Iran nuclear deal. That's a fact. Uh, the Houthis, the uh, Qatab Hezbollah of, of Iraq, they have less money, and less money means less terrorism, less military attacks, uh, less attacks on Americans. It doesn't mean an end to those attacks. And it doesn't even mean an end to Iranian support. Iranian support, according to public figures, to uh, Lebanese Hezbollah, despite all of Iran's troubles, 
is $600 million a year. So a country that complains it doesn't have enough money to fund COVID vaccinations has enough money to give $600 million a year. And that is a conservative estimate to Lebanese Hezbollah. And that's, that's a defining, defining uh, issue there. Anyway. Uh, Norm, you've opened the door on uh, Iran's proxy wars. Let's talk a little bit more about that. Um, can you describe that in a little bit more detail? Why has Tehran been so successful? And are there any limits to their capabilities? Great question. So uh, I think up front, I would say your listeners need to understand that Iran, since 2003, has created a transnational Shia and Sunni militant network, which is capable of fighting on disconnected battlefields against different foes simultaneously. The number of militants in the Iranian network number in excess of 200,000. Those, those are two facts that need some digestion. The groups with which Iran works, there are about 30 to 40 Shia groups throughout the region. There are flavors of the Shia groups, Lebanese Hezbollah to the Houthis, Zaidi Houthis. But there are also Sunni groups. Uh, Iran supports elements of the Taliban. Iran supports Hamas. And its militancy operates with different levels of control. And perhaps the worst uh, question I, I, I get uh, is, um, uh, why do we believe Iran is behind these sort of violence in the Middle East since it can't control these groups? Now, hypothetically speaking, and I'm speaking hypothetically, if you or I ever worked with groups in places like Afghanistan or other areas, you understand that control isn't always absolute over groups, nor is it necessary. Control is instead something that you employ with some proxy groups in terms of uh, wind them up and let them go. They will do the voodoo that they do so well. And their success is your success, and that's good enough. Other groups, you need, you need to be very precise and say that tank on Thursday, this location, and that Iran does some of that in, in, in Syria with Lebanese Hezbollah, where it indeed manages the ground war for the Syrian government. Um, uh, another, another fact that is lost. Iran's able to do this because we don't have, as the West, we don't have a capacity to fight in this gray zone. It's not who we are. And our Arab partners in the region and Israel don't operate in that area either. We are conventional war fighters, aircraft, tanks, submarines, et cetera, et cetera. We talk about managing guerrilla groups, the Mujahideen in the Afghan war, but those are really anomalies. But we don't fight counter insurgency groups the same way, um, in the same, with the same intensity that would be required to defeat them. So there's a reason that we don't work very well to push back Iran and Afghan in Syria, but they have Afghan elements fighting, Pakistani elements, uh, some Baluch, uh, and of course, Lebanese Hezbollah. We would use aircraft or artillery to combat this, boots on the ground with our infantry. Iran doesn't necessarily do this. Now, by operating in this way, Iran achieves a couple of different goals. First, it's able to push forward with power projection, albeit in very limited circumstances. 
For Iran to achieve power projection, it requires four circumstances. And these four circumstances if, if, are, are so critical that if one is absent, a country is safe. First, there must be a failed state or a failing state. Uh, beleaguered Shia population. Um, and uh, you need a an element of security forces willing to use the worst forms of violence to maintain their hold on power. And finally, you need the absence of external um, uh, uh, elements willing to restore order. So imagine Yemen, Iraq of 2003 on, Syria, even parts of Lebanon, Western Afghanistan, uh, parts of Balochistan. These are not hard locations for Iran to operate. But this should assure you that whereas Iran can develop this, this the Shia crescent that King Abdullah of Jordan predicted accurately, it's not a serious threat, say, to Bahrain, where it's a terror, Iran is a terrorist threat. So how do you confront this? Well, that's a challenge because it requires will on our side that we've yet to demonstrate. Where is this going in coming months? Well, it's going to continue because for the most part, it's cheap. Um, Afghan fighters are only paid a couple of hundred dollars a month. And when they're not paid, they're reminded that it's a long walk, as you well know, Jim, from Aleppo to Kandahar. And uh, the uh, other aspect of this is that for Iran in coming months, they're going to be translate transferring efforts to building political depth in these countries. I think Syria is going to have some of its DNA. It's already been changed by the conflict, changed further. The Houthis will increasingly become something closer to Lebanese Hezbollah something closer to Qatar, Hezbollah in the south of Iraq. But here's the danger. Here's the thing that gets very little press, that if I were sitting in front of uh, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs or the president or vaunted chief, any Jim Hughes himself, I would say the land gray zone conflict is less important now than the sea gray zone conflict. We're watching the Houthis conduct Dozens of, um, of of strikes on in the red in the Red Sea against uh, oil vessels, platforms, commercial vessels, military targets using armed drones, ballistic missiles from Iran, and explosive boats from Iran. In fact, on one of the explosive boats, uh, a laptop was found because it didn't explode, and uh, it contained video and pictures of IRGC officers who conducted the training on how to use the darn thing which apparently wasn't very good because it didn't explode and was captured. But we've recently seen the attack on Rasa Tanura, which produces 7% of the globe's oil, 6.5 million bar barrels of oil a day. It's, it's Saudi Arabia's oldest and largest oil export facility. Uh, that attack did not um, succeed, but um, some of the hardware thrown at Rasa Tanura landed dangerously close to a um, uh, 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 an, an, a compound with expatriates. So not only are Saudi lives at threat by this, and that's always important, but we have non-Saudi lives at risk. And in the 30-ish million pop, uh, people who live in Saudi Arabia, about a third of which are members of every country on earth. So this this attack from the sea, which is now going on on all sides of Saudi Arabia, to include in the Arabian Sea, uh, where there was a uh, an attack against the an Israeli shipping vessel, um, 
I think one of the first since 1972 when the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine used Yemen to attack Israeli oil tankers heading north. You, you now have a multinational or a threat against multinational elements by Iran and its proxies, and there is no international reaction. And if any of your listeners want to push back on me, I suggest that as they write into you, not me, with their complaints, they have hinted at the list of UN Security Council decisions on Iran's proxy activities or European Union decisions, aside from the stiffly worded demarche over the past five years or seven years. One, Russia and China have blocked all action of the United Nations Security Council against Iran. Uh, uh, they have blocked all action against Iran. Elsewhere in the European Union, the Union is not um, a significant player. And indeed, on terrorism, I will tell you an anecdote that I've not told anyone before. In I think it was 2012, the Iranians attempted to use a, um, a unemployed used car dealer to kill the then Saudi ambassador to the United States, Abu Jabir. He was recruited in Iran. He was sent back and he attempted to use a Mexican drug smuggler to uh, bring explosives to the United States to kill not only Abu Jabir, my friend and yours, but anyone else who happened to be near him, that would be okay. And reportedly, this was at a restaurant cafe in Milano. So I led the IC effort on that issue. But I also got to go to the United Nations. And I briefed every UN ambassador on this issue. And without a doubt, absolutely without a doubt, the Russians were the worst. The then Russian ambassador has since passed away, uh, actually stomped out of the meeting after hearing the data, which is available on the website of the Southern District of New York. It's declassified. Um, and he stomped out of the room declaring it to be similar to the O.J. Simpson case or the Casey Anthony case, that the evidence was weak and he wanted to hear nothing about it. And he just stood up, stomped out of the room and left everyone just there wondering what had happened. But for Russia and China on Iran's regional activity, they listen with their ears wide shut. And they watch this with their eyes wide shut because they see it, know it, it doesn't touch their equities. So because of this, the international community is not positioned now to stop these attacks by armed drones. And the risk becomes if you're Saudi Arabia, at what point do you say, I'm tired of being told by the West to constrain my responses to Iran? I'm tired of being told to de-escalate when the only thing I'm doing against Iran is catching their missiles. Saudi Arabia is now the most experienced air defense force in the world. They've had more missiles and drones thrown at them since any country since Adolf was sending candy grams to Winston, the V1s and V2s. At what point do they say, we need to buy our own missiles? We need to buy our own armed drones and give Iran a taste of its own medicine. We might not so much be in, be, in, be in a place where we have to worry about a nuclear arms race in the Middle East, but a missile race or an armed drone race, that could be a real threat. And at what point would we say if someone were firing 300 missiles against us from Mexico, 500 drones, dozens of armed explosive boats, would we say, we need to take that back, fight south of our border? That's, and, and my, by the way, if they're Russian supplied weapons, we need to give Moscow a taste of that.
So if we put ourselves in their shoes, you know, you start asking at what point is it reasonable that they do this? And I think that's a danger for the international community. Sorry to go on so long, but it's a fascinating top topic for me. All right, that's a, a really bleak assessment, Brian, Norm. Can we be successful in trying to reform Iran? No, with, it's, uh, um, it's not within our capacity. And if there's one constant, it is that we somehow believe that by our own actions, we can change other governments. We can certainly develop architectures which shape some of their behavior, particularly if we work with, with multilateral institutions and our allies. But there are limits there. Have we changed Russia's behavior or China's behavior or Cuba's behavior? And I'm not talking about people to people. I'm talking about on the decisions that matter most to the United States. And with Iran, it's going to be nuclear weapons. It's going to be um, uh, terrorism. It's going to be regional uh, attacks which threaten American lives as well as those of our partners. Remember, 20 million Saudi civilians are under those missiles and drones every day. I think what we can do is we can um, uh, successfully contain Iran if we have military support. Uh, multinational support that avoids a conflict, and that gives the Iranian people time to make their own decisions. Here's your problem. Go back to Ibrahim Raisi, the chief justice, likely successor for the Supreme Leader. He was a presidential candidate against the current president, Hassan Rouhani. In the election in 2017, he received 15 million votes. 15 million votes. Now, let's let's Recognize there's probably some padding there. There's probably some fibbing there by the Iranian government to give him, give him a, a, a little bit of stature. He may not have had. That was about 37% of all of the votes. That means about, but if we accept that as a real number, that's 37% of Iran saying, I like a guy who killed thousands of people in the 1980s, who believes in segregation, who believes in the destruction of Israel. Who believes all these things and is a, a very, very close ally of the Iranian Revo the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, the IRGC. And so I think we have to be careful. What I would what I would say we can do is, and this comes to our own behavior and our own social political circumstances. America, when we are the city on the hill, when we are the beacon to the world, we are that beacon because of our behavior and how we act um, as an example. We can shape behavior of many countries in the world by being a great example. I'm not sure that a clever covert action program dropping cassette tapes or a Tomahawk missile strike against an IRGC facility or a stiffly worded demarche at the UN will have any significant impact. But being who we are, the best of who we are, uh, that has the chance of changing Iran um, into a more responsible country. Um, switching subjects just uh, slightly, Norm, what are Iran's goals for the ongoing nuclear deal? Right. So Iran's goals are, uh, are, are, are well known. This will not be a surprise, um, uh, but they fit, they nest within a series of broader goals of what Iran seeks regarding the United States in general. Uh, it's easy to say Iran wishes to ensure that nothing threatens the um, uh, survival of the Islamic Republic. And secondly, they wish to see that U.S. influence and presence in the region is diminished and Iran has a chance to be either A, 
or the regional hegemon? I think A is the correct answer, but there are those who say the, and that's not what you and I would have called during our time an intelligence question. That's an intelligence mystery and why God gave analysts three days to lock themselves in the room to argue over one word. The Iranians also have some specific goals regarding their nuclear program. And these are publicly stated. And as you know, the old uh, saw of your adversary always tells you what he wants to do. First is they want to retain industrial enrichment. They want to obtain a program where they can enrich uranium and uh, a plutonium reactor. Second, they want to retain their research and development program to build better reactors and centrifuges. Now, these can be shaped, these can be restricted, these can be constrained, but they want those two things. Thirdly, they want to ensure that they have no public humiliations. So no facility can be closed. So GOM, which I mentioned earlier, which looks a heck of a lot like what you would build if you were putting a, a Dr. No facility somewhere under a mountain to build a nuclear weapon. It's not, it was never closed. It was emptied of some of its technology. And now the Iranians are putting some of the technology back. And finally, they want the, the world to admit that one day in any deal, they'll be treated like a regular nuclear power for medical, uh, nuclear medicine and that, and, and it'll just be a, a regular state. That's really pretty hard. If you're in the region, if you're Israel, Israel tends to take the nuclear weapon more seriously than anyone else in the region it's for one simple reason. Iran has repeatedly said it wishes to annihilate, uh, Israel and, uh, Rafsanjani himself, the shark, um, former president, um, revolutionary leader, uh, uh, stated that whereas one nuclear weapon could easily destroy Judaism, Iran could, could sustain several nuclear attacks and survive. So that really, that's the foundation of a paradigm in Israel that unless you get that and accept that, you won't understand Israeli behavior. The rest of the Gulf is less concerned about a nuclear weapon. You're Saudi Arabia, you worry about missiles and drones, but you don't think that the Iranians are going to drop a nuclear weapon on Mecca. If you're Bahrain, you don't worry about a nuclear weapon. You worry about the explosives, which are routinely sent by Iran to every port in the country, both for use in Bahrain and also for transmission to uh, transport to Saudi Arabia to be used in the eastern province over the causeway. So for, for Iran, their primary goal is to, to sustain this effort. Now, here's the, if you were an analyst, say, and I'm not smart enough to be an analyst, but if I were sitting with analysts on the inside, they would say, and Iran probably wishes to retain the capacity to build a nuclear weapon should they desire to do so. And that the wording is important. So as the world knows, the Israeli intelligence service uh, uh, achieved an extraordinary historic success. They captured, they seized and brought to Israel and exposed to the world Iran's weaponization archive. That's really, really important. And here's why it's important. This, this archive, you've got to imagine that it's a cookbook, but it's not a cookbook to tell you how to make the cake. It's a cookbook that tells you the ways you don't want to make the cake. So if you need to, need to make a cake very quickly, you do these things. And these things have to do with not just how to handle sisal material or how to shape a warhead or how to attach it to a Shahab missile, et cetera, et cetera. But it includes such things as what types of people do you need? What type of housing do you need? How do you keep the secret? What type of funding do you need? What type of architecture do you need? 
And that goes to the point of the killing of Mohsen Fakhrizadeh, a, a really nasty piece of work, if ever there was one. His, his loss for the Iranians, along with the nuclear archive, are tremendous setbacks. And whatever your views are on the issue, and I'm not, I'm not commenting on the, the, the assassination aspect of that, since that's forbidden to us under Executive Order 12333, his loss took away the only individual in Iran who had ever managed such a program and had close relations with the Supreme Leader, and in close relations with the IRC top leadership, and had elbows of, of sharpened steel to push people out of his way to run that program himself. His passing in that architecture may have bought significant time for diplomacy. So Iran seeks in its deal to protect all of these, those four areas I mentioned, so that it can sustain itself, but probably to retain the capacity to build a weapon were it ever to decide to do so. And I personally believe it won't because it won't need to, but many Israelis not unsurprisingly feel otherwise. Norby, you've been watching Iran uh, very closely for a long time. Any final thoughts you'd like to leave with our viewers before we go? It's hard. It's complicated. The people who've worked this issue over the years have been um, some of the best minds we've we've had in the U.S. But knowing, understanding Iran is like understanding a dread disease. And I'm not calling Iranian people a disease. I'm talking about the problems of terrorism and regional issues. You can understand a lot of it, but that doesn't mean you have policy solutions that go with it. You can know that the illness of a patient without having an actual solution to cure the patient. Our policies have generally been consistent despite rhetoric and partisan hackery that you sometimes sometimes see in the press. And it, al it has allowed us to contain this problem, but it could spike it at any moment. What I would think would be more useful for the world is to ignore some of the partisan hackery. Right now, or under the Trump administration, it was not unusual to hear people say, well, the region has never been more dangerous. And when people say uh, the region is never more dangerous under the Trump administration, they usually don't consider that Syria and Yemen were part of the region under the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action or prior to that, because it was terribly dangerous for Syrians and Yemenis. It just wasn't a, uh, an, an issue there. We also worry that uh, we've got ourselves into a bit of groupthink. And this is a terrible, terrible issue. You know, groupthink on the Iraq war had consequences. Groupthink now for the, um, on, on the Iran issue is if we have the slightest kinetic action, we have a terrific land war the next morning. And it has taken, uh, whatever your views are on the actions, um, the, the killing of Qasem Soleimani, we didn't have a war. Now, one may say perhaps people had insights, and I hope they did, and I hope it came from U.S. and allied partners, intelligence, and all the brilliant people who work in the intelligence community. There are some amazing minds on the Iran program, amazing minds. But we've got ourselves locked into this. No matter what we do, there's a war the next day, and that's a gift to Iran. And the final thing I would say is we've also got ourselves locked into the um, – it reminds me of the, the adage of the really attractive but unpleasant girl – um, and the geeky fellow who wishes for a date, she can say whatever she wants, but one smile and he comes running. So Iran can do a bunch of terrible things and they come up with one announcement that will say, maybe we're interested in negotiations. And you'll see a lot of people in the U.S. to say, my God, they've changed overnight. They love us after all. That's not so. Jim, thank you very much. I would like to close with a, with a comment on a different issue. 
Okay. I've always considered myself uh, someone that's tried to follow in your footsteps. And you were a model to a generation of officers um, in, in the agency. And I, I have never thought your service was sufficiently recognized, but I will recall one moment. I can recall when you were leaving one assignment in my 34 career, that was the only time when I saw your entire staff stand up and give you a standing ovation. And I was fortunate to be part of that group. And it was the smallest recognition for the um, not only extraordinary work you did in your career and the leadership you showed, but the, your, your, the model you set for other officers uh, um, um, to reach. And I just want to thank you as a mustarab, as a mustashrik, an Arabist, and an Orientalist. Phrases both out of phrase. But thank you. Well, thank you very much. Um, as you well know, um, occasionally they do hand us um, pieces of metal with ribbons on them. Um, but it is always the acclaim of your colleagues that is the most cherished. This has been a fascinating and very thought-provoking presentation. I want to thank uh, Norm Rule very, very much and hope that we can get him back again sometime soon for another program on AFIO Now. Thank you. Thank you.